Thursday, 19th of June, 1997. The small hours. Boca Raton Airport, Florida. It's another hot, humid night. The start of hurricane season, in fact. And maybe it happens something like this. Okay, guys. You ready? Let's go. The seven-foot chain-link perimeter fence doesn't give them much trouble. Easily scaled. It's not even alarmed. Time. Two minutes, 30 seconds till it lands. There's an overnight security guard, but only one to cover the whole airfield. This is not JFK or Miami International. They either know his beat or take their chances he's got his feet up in the hut near the entrance. Once past the fence, they keep low, move swiftly, avoid the lights, go, go, go. and make for the private aircraft hangars. There's more than 60 rented hangars on the base lined up in rows, nearly all identical, filled with private jets, Cessnas, rich men's toys. But somehow, these guys know exactly which one to head for. First, they disable the alarm system. Then, they get to work on the rubber molding around the hangar door, a key weak point. Then, the padlock is sawed off. And they're in. And there she is. Not a private plane, something more special, more iconic, and much, much more beautiful. Silver birch curves shine in the light of the torches. A 1963 Aston Martin DB5, chassis number DP2161. The most famous car in the world. And they've come to steal it. I'm Elizabeth Hurley. Welcome to the Great James Bond Car Robbery, the hunt for the most famous car in the world. Over the next eight episodes, we'll be investigating what happened to that car. The ultimate James Bond car, driven by Sean Connery himself. It's one of the most iconic vehicles of the 20th century. You can imagine yourself as Bond. It makes an impression. You have to close your eyes and really just imagine paradise. I'd left my passenger window open and some lady leapt through the window into his lap. You know, it had the machine guns, it had the ejector seat, it had the smoke bombs. It was uh, iconic. And how a mission to return it to his rightful owners is now on. There is a six-figure reward being offered by the insurer. It is possible, of course, that it is in the hands of an oligarch. I still think it's probably in the jungles of South America somewhere. One of the thieves just said, you know what, this car is too beautiful to destroy. Somebody definitely did it for money, but at the end of that chain, there's somebody that did it for passion. Well, this is the first podcast I've done, but I've done some BBC and documentary films and things like that. Christopher Marinello is the CEO of Art Recovery International. The guy you go to when your priceless Picasso, Diamond Tiara or family Rembrandt has gone missing. Our producers met him outside because of COVID restrictions and also because of operational security. He doesn't like too many people to know the address of his office, 
Too many art treasures, too high a security risk. Yep, there is something quite special agenty about him. I've got a, a big case going on right now in Venice. Many of my clients are in the city of London. Uh, New York is usually the third leg of my work voyages. So we're here on a very important case in our office that we've been working on for about 10 years. It is the most important vehicle in the world, in my view, and that would be the James Bond DB5 from the Goldfinger film. That's a 1963 Aston Martin DB5, the beautiful gadget-filled sports car Sean Connery drives in the third Bond film. The car is an icon. The car was stolen in 1997 from an airport hangar in Boca Raton, Florida, and hasn't been seen since. And, and the insurance company paid out. The payout amount was well over four million US dollars. The value of the car today, I've been told by experts who sell vehicles of this nature, could be $15 million. And who knows, maybe even more. If it can be found. That's why you hire Christopher. He takes on the international art crime missions others can't crack. Well, my clients pay me a fee for my recovery work, and that usually happens if and when the item is recovered. But, you know, that's really not what's driving me here for 10 years. This is my white whale, so to speak, or shall we say the uh, the holy grail of art recovery. And he's got a mission for our listeners. You know, anyone who, who comes up with information that helps us recover the vehicle is in line for a, a six-figure reward payment once law enforcement approves, and they usually do. And, and I will help facilitate that. And I've done it before. I get tips all the time from people that have seen the car all over the world, whether they've seen it in Amsterdam, they've seen it at auction, they've seen it at museums, friends' garages, here in the UK. I mean, 99% of the time, it's another silver DB5 or DB6, where they don't know Aston Martins. But the question always is, well, have you seen the engine? Have you seen the chassis number? Do you know where these numbers are located and can you get a photograph of that? That's what I need to see when someone gives out a tip and says, I think we found your your DB5. So, you know, not every Aston Martin is the car we're looking for. To understand the car, the holy grail of stolen vehicles, we need to go back a little bit. Well, back a lot. Breaking open a cold case like this, you have to start at the beginning. Why is this the most famous car in the world anyway? Remember this? Morning, Q. Morning, Dalton. This way, please. Goldfinger, 1964. The classic Eon Productions film produced by Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli. Bond is in Q's laboratory, the first time the Gadget Lab makes an appearance in any Bond film. Connery, immaculate in dark blue suit with pocket square. Q, ruffled as ever. Now, pay attention, please. The camera pans across from a bulletproof vest being tested on a live subject to a brand new silver sports car. You'll be using this Aston Martin DB5 with modifications. Windscreen bulletproof, as are the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates naturally. Valid all countries. So we're watching Q explain the DB5 to uh, James Bond. 
Carlo Borromeo is a car designer, one of the best in the world. He's creative director at Garage Italia. And I'm here to talk about the design of the mighty DB5. The ultimate Bond car, maybe the ultimate car, bristling with weapons and gadgets. Smoke screen, oil slick, rear bulletproof screen, and left and right front wing machine guns. <laughs> I'm going to have to rewatch the entire movie tonight. So good. So to me, uh, what makes it so iconic is, first of all, that it's a striking design. You know, it's as simple as that sometimes. It's just a beautifully designed car. This was the first James Bond with gadgets, which for me was a huge part of the deal when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, the, the, the DB5 was the queen of all gadgets. And um, like I would watch over and over again that part where Q explains the car to James Bond. Now, if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. One thing that really got to me is how, at the end, the car was destroyed. And that was a very progressive thing to do at the time, I think. Because back in the day, you know, the hero was perfect, getting from the beginning of the end to the movie unscratched, basically. So to, to take the hero car of the movie and actually bang it against the wall, it was quite an interesting uh, choice. You can't help noticing that for Carlo, as a car designer, the hero of the movie that has to survive unscathed is the car, not James Bond. <laughs> well, yes, in a way. I mean, it's such a special object in that movie that it, it becomes a character as much as James Bond. I'm sure that the first time I'd ever seen it was when I first watched Goldfinger. This is Mary Seelhorst, museum exhibit developer. She's one of the world's leading experts on the history of this unique vehicle. Yeah, it's a little sports car, kind of a silvery color. It has a, a sort of a special slot just ahead of the boot, or you know what we call the trunk in the US. And that slot is where the bulletproof shield comes up and down. It has that sort of classic-looking Aston grille. I think even today, it looks like a pretty cool car. It's a beautiful car. But of course, it's not just about how the car looked. I like the gadgetry and, you know, it was just this, this sort of fantasy world where everything was simple and the good guys always won. And, you know, and of course, in the movie... There was just something really great about having all this stuff built into this car. The car just handles really well and he's, you know, you know, making all these maneuvers. And it's sort of this fantasy that I think anybody who likes to drive, that's the kind of thing they want to do. And so it was appealing to me. And I know that it was to a lot of other people too. Mary's seen the DB5's hold on people up close. She organized one of the car's public appearances at the Henry Ford Museum in Michigan. It was exhibited toward the front of the museum. You saw it as you were coming in the, the front. And, you know, when you eavesdrop on people, which I used to do all the time, you'd hear people quoting lines from the movie. And I, I used to kind of know it by heart, you know, now pay attention, 007. <laughs> the, the one that really sticks in my head is, is when... Bond says, an ejector seat? You're joking. And, and Q says, I never joke about my work, 007. In some ways, I think, even if there had only been one Bond movie, this car would have made a real impression on people, partly because there's sort of an appeal 
to the concept of just being being a spy that encourages you to sort of put yourself into this vehicle in your mind. And, you know, probably more so for, for guys than for women. I mean, you know, I'm female, but I was into it. I thought it was great. <laughs> Let's be honest. Bond is kind of, he's a jerk. He treats women terribly. But it's this sort of simpler time when, you know, men were men and girls were girls and, you know, cars were cars. And one guy with a trick car could save the world. You know, the movies are very straightforward. They're very black and white. The movies may have been straightforward, but that didn't stop Goldfinger being a hit and creating the template for Bond and most action movies for the next 20 years. Silver DB5s have appeared more than any other car in Bond films since then, with Q getting progressively more crumpled and irate. As the decades rolled by, the legend of the DB5 has grown. Even a book about it, Dave Worrell's The Most Famous Car in the World, has become a sought-after collector's item. In the coming episodes, we'll be exploring the amazing real-life adventures of the people who created the legend of this extraordinary car. From Ian Fleming's car crash in Switzerland to the influence of a heroic World War II fighter pilot on Bond's weaponry. But this series isn't just about the elegance of Aston Martin and the wonder of Bond gadgets. It's also about one DB5 in particular, the very car in that scene with Bond and Q in the lab. The Goldfinger Gadget Car. The same car in the locked hangar on a stormy night in Florida. So, theory number one. Silver grey curves shine in the light of the torches, but the thieves don't hang about admiring the view. The most daring moment is still to come. A tow truck is readied and hitched to the gleaming bodywork. Press reports from the time describe tyre marks on the asphalt showing the DB5 was dragged, not driven. There's a rendezvous to be made. Easy now. Remember the plan. Suddenly, out on the airstrip, the deserted runway lights burst into life. And from out of the night, a plane begins its descent right on time. Not the kind of light aircraft that usually lands at Boca Raton. A huge cargo plane. Maybe a C-130 military transport. The kind that carries tanks all over the world. It doesn't take long to load the prize onto the ramp, secure the hold, a short taxi for takeoff, and it's done. The C-130 with the DB-5 on board climbs high into the rain-swept skies and disappears. Runway lights flicker and switch off. The most famous car in the world is gone. Never seen since. That's the most glamorous theory, really, in relation to this. Adam Lux is an investigative journalist who's been helping us, well, investigate this. Someone came through the chainmail fence at Baccarat on airport. They sliced through the moulding on the hangar door, cut the metal latch, snipped the alarm wires between the hours of 4pm on Wednesday, the 18th of June 1997, and 7am on Thursday the 19th. And then made a most unusual getaway. You know, the theory that um, the cargo plane, and it would have have to have been a cargo plane, would have had to have landed at the airport to take off a 
in a heavy piece of metal like the DB5. And, you know, the suggestion therefore is that it landed and loaded at the pitch of night and then sort of vanished off into the night sky. This is a version of events we've heard from several sources, but it's been hard to pin down its origin. The owner of the car, Anthony Puglesi, declined our request for an interview. But in an article about the crime in the South Florida Sentinel a few months after the events, he's quoted as saying that the car might have been flown out of the country. Mary Sealhorse says she was told about the cargo plane theory by those involved in the official insurance company investigation into the crime. So what I learned about this was that they believe that there was a light cargo plane, you know, a, a small plane of the type that could land at that airport. I, I heard this directly from Jim Grundy, who was directly involved in the investigation. We weren't able to agree on terms for an interview with Mr. Grundy, but we did ask him to confirm whether his investigation had found evidence for the cargo plane theory. We have not received a response to that question. So I believe him that it was put on a plane. Do you know what it reminds me of, though? It's like something a Bond villain would do if they were trying to steal a car. You know how the, the villains in, in Bond movies always go through these elaborate setups like the, the laser beam, you know, inching inexorably crotchward, you know, <laughs> in Goldfinger. This seems like one of those elaborate plots, like I want to steal a car. And instead of doing the easy version, they do the hard version. You know, there are easier ways to do this. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you sort of thinking about it at um, first blush, it seems all a bit implausible. Adam Luck again. Implausible for a host of reasons. A layman's knowledge of airports is that everything is documented. We all make that assumption. So it sounds implausible. You'd think that there would be a paper trail for any investigating police officer to just come along and have a look at it. But we spoke to the airport manager, the businessman who rented the hangar, to Mr. Pugliese and the manager of the fuel concession at the time of this disappearance. And some of what they had to say seemed to lend some plausibility to this cargo plane theory. For example? We tracked down the airport manager, Nelson Rhodes, and he said there was no control tower. So really, there was no, uh, there would have been no paper trail. You know, in, in other words, planes were free to land and leave as they saw fit from Baccaraton Airport at that time. The runway lights were also automated and could be switched on by an approaching plane without the involvement of anyone on the ground. Mr Rhodes also said is that uh, post 9-11, the security and all those kind of issues and no doubt records were tightened up. But at that point, it's pretty lax, basically. Another sort of note of incredulity for me was that he said he couldn't be certain as to whether he would have even received a report that a plane had landed. He thought that he would, particularly if it was a plane of that size, but he couldn't be sure that that would be the case. It's not just the airport manager. One of the other people we spoke to was um, the businessman, Harry Whittle, who owned the company that ran the hangars and rented them out. And he didn't think it was that astonishing that a Hercules, he, he suggested a Hercules C-130 could land at the airport. He said it was perfectly capable of doing so. Hello. We got through to Harry on the phone. I, I could have gone out here and taken off any time at night so anybody could fly in and out of here any time and nobody cared, nobody recorded it. It was the same story after takeoff, according to Harry and other airport officials at the time. 
Air traffic control in the rest of Florida wouldn't necessarily have picked up on an unscheduled aircraft flying through the area, even a plane of that size. Boca Raton was in something called uncontrolled airspace, not tracked by radar or monitored below a certain height, which helped with other kinds of unscheduled activities in South Florida. A lot of the drugs coming in were being flown into Florida, among other places. These pilots got pretty good at, at picking a route where they could go into these uncontrolled spaces and fly in. All you have to do is stay at low altitude, basically. There's a legend that a drug plane being chased by the DEA actually landed at Boca Raton to try and escape. The pilot jumped out, climbed the fence and melted into a crowd of students at a university campus next door, leaving his cargo idling on the runway. So a raid by professional thieves and exit by aircraft might be possible. Art investigator Christopher Marinello is open to the theory. The case file, which I don't want to go into too much detail because we have to leave open the possibility that somebody will come forward that will know some of those details that will be of interest to law enforcement. But I can say that the door was forced open, that the car was led to a area where a cargo plane could have been parked and that the car was most likely placed on that cargo plane, which took off for places unknown. And, and the insurance company paid out and uh, now we're in a situation where the insurance company would like their car back. Of course, it's about more than that. Much more for Christopher, as we'll find out later in this series. This is his white whale, remember? Christopher Marinello is a car fan. And to him, a great car is a work of art. I'll first admit that before I moved full-time to Venice, I was a car collector. I did have some old Jaguars and Mercedes and some American muscle cars. They're all gone now. But my love of rare automobiles has never left me. And it's no different from fine art. And anybody tries to tell me that a rare Ferrari or Aston Martin is not a work of art, I'll chase them away because these vehicles are just absolutely stunning. They take your breath away just like a Titian or a, a Warhol would. In particular? I do have a penchant for 1960s Ferraris. That being said, I, I probably could only afford the 1960s Alfa Romeos, which I also like very much. It makes sense. To become one of the world's top art crime investigators, you need both an interest in justice and an eye for beautiful things. I wanted to be an artist and I went to art school and uh, my art teacher and family encouraged me to try something else. I guess I wasn't particularly talented in that area, so I was encouraged to go to law school and that I could always go back to painting. And hopefully one day when I decide to retire, I, I can do just that. But, um, you know, as an attorney, I could never really lose that interest in the arts. So I developed a, a practice representing art galleries and dealers and collectors and eventually helped them solve their problems. And their problems usually involved title disputes, money that they paid, items that they got back that were not what they were supposed to be, or anything that is considered an art crime. And that could be 
uh, theft, that could be uh, financial crimes, title disputes, artists who consign works of art to galleries that don't get paid, rare automobile dealers that have acquired a, a vehicle that turns out to be stolen from some other jurisdiction and someone is claiming it, two dealers fighting over the same vehicle, you know, all that kind of stuff. My clients come to me because they want to do it discreetly and professionally and, you know, they know to come to me for exactly that reason. Sitting here in the park in London, Christopher says he's not intimidated by the thought that the Goldfinger car might be in the hands of some very powerful people. I've uh, handled some of the most important cases of Nazi looting, paintings that were looted by Hermann Goering and found their way into museums. I routinely recover artwork and jewelry and rare automobiles and watches that have been missing anywhere from five years since the theft to 30 years or 70 years since the war. I also represent private victims, families that were murdered in the Holocaust, that the survivors come to me to help them locate and recover their rightful property. So my clients really come from anywhere. And now time might be running out for whoever has 007's ride. I've gone public with the story and I'm speaking with you about it for my own motivation, which is to encourage this individual to come forward and meet with me to discuss the title issue over this car before I get too close to him and divulge his name. You know, people who have collections like this don't want to be named. They they don't want to be embarrassed. And despite these offers, you know, many people take me up on them and said, oh my goodness, I've got a stolen vehicle or a stolen painting, you know, let's meet somewhere and work it out. And those people, you'll never hear about them. But every once in a while, you've got somebody that decides, I'm too rich, I'm too powerful, I'm too important to care about the law and and about having something stolen in my collection. And I push these people to the point where eventually they will be named and shamed and exposed. And then they come running back to me and say, how could you do this? How could you possibly expose me like this. I said, well, wait a minute. I gave you every opportunity to call me and sit down in a quiet room and sort it out. So far, no one has taken up that offer to sit down with Christopher and sort it out. And so the six-figure reward for information leading to the recovery of the car still stands. In my work, I always give my adversaries an opportunity to do this the right way. I, that, that's my MO, the nice way and the not so nice way. And you can pick any place you want in between where you want to land. You've been warned. Next time on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. James Bond's Aston Martin DB5 sold for $250,000, ladies and gentlemen. Pugliese bought it at auction, and he starts on this campaign to increase its value. Anthony Pugliese is a wonderfully charismatic man and just a lot of fun to be around. And exploring Ian Fleming's role in the myth of this amazing car. Bond is, I think, a mixture of what 
Fleming would have liked to have been and the sort of people who he knew. He adored cars. He liked them and I liked them, but he really liked them. That's all in episode two. That was the great James Bond car robbery, episode one, brought to you by the Spyscape Podcast Network. The producers are cup and nuzzle. Disclaimer, the Great James Bond car robbery is not affiliated with Eon Productions, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, Inc. or Danjak, LLC. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.